0: I entered theological education I found language and it was uh, like receiving the great good news that I wasn't alone generations before me had stumbled on these same things and they had a way to talk about it but uh uh-oh they had a way to systematize it you know they had a way to talk about what came first and what came second and what naturally came third and what number four would be the natural outcome so the loss was I started containing these liminal transcendent experiences I'd had. I I found a box to put them in. And in the first place, it's wonderful because I could label the box. And there were other people who would know what I was talking about when I spoke with them using the language in the box. But pretty soon, well, not pretty soon, after a while, the box became a liability and, and not a rescue. And I don't judge the latter or the former by the latter. It was a rescue when it was a rescue, and it became a liability when it became a liability. But I wouldn't trade either of those stages. I needed them both a formation stage, and then a reformation stage. And now I don't even know what to call this stage.
1: Your thoughts, your needs, your needs,
2: your Welcome to the Sacred Speaks. And I'm your host, John Price. I hope today or some point soon you get the opportunity to do something a little irreverent and meaningful. My irreverence came in the form of going out on a school night. So about seven hours ago, my wife Leela and I were really enjoying the the music of Jim James at the Heights Theater. There's something about that uh, concert experience. It's a religious experience uh, with the collective to be with everybody and just having our minds taken by um, w- amazing music. <laughs> uh, and speaking of amazing, I'm excited to be preparing this episode for you today with Barbara Brown Taylor. And uh, I'll, I'll give the bio of Barbara in a bit. I'm just excited to, um, to be connecting a loop here because my first exposure to her was uh, years ago when uh, Lila and I were on a road trip And we listened to her audiobook, Learning to Walk in the Dark. And it was great to read both that again, but connect with her newest work, Holy Envy, which we'll be talking about today. And uh, I'll just go ahead and introduce Barbara right now, for those of you that don't know her. You can look her up at Barbara Brown Taylor, B-A-R-B-A-R-A-B-R-O-W-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Barbara Brown Taylor is a best-selling author, teacher, and Episcopal priest. Her first memoir, Leaving Church, won an Author of the Year Award from the Georgia Writers Association in 2006. Her next two books, An Altar in the World, 2010, and Learning to Walk in the Dark, 2015, earned places on the New York Times bestseller list. She served on the faculties of Piedmont College, Columbia Theological Seminary, Candler School of Theology at Emory University, McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, and the Certificate in Theological Studies Program at Arendelle State Prison for Women in Alto, Georgia. In 2014, Time included her on its annual list of most influential people. In 2015, she was named Georgia Woman of the Year. In 2016, she received the President's Medal at the Chautauqua Institution of New York. Her 14th book, Holy Envy, was released by Harper One in March 2019. Barbara, thank you so much for this conversation. I, uh, I'm grateful. So, a couple of notes uh, tonight. I'll be teaching a class with another participant on this, uh, on this podcast, Rabbi Ariel Showclapper from episode 18. And if you're in the Houston area, come by the Young Center. It is our second of four classes, and you can come and jump on in. We're looking at interpretive frameworks. In um, in in scripture, but also in literature, and and really, it's about ways to view reality, and we're borrowing from a number of different interpretive frameworks, in um, in studies, both both literary, uh, and also religious. So come on out to the uh, to the class if you can. Another offer is that uh, Dr. Mauro Ferrari has put together a wonderful group of folks that actually includes a number of people from this podcast. Uh, Jeffrey Kripal, uh, last episode, uh, uh, Juanita Rasmus. And it's a group of individuals coming together to explore uh, Transforming the Mind and Spirit. It's an exploration of creativity with Mauro Ferrari and maestro Patrick Summers. This is a, f- a fascinating <laughs> experience. I think for all involved, we're, we're going to be um, both really eager to participate, but also eager to watch others it's this large group of people that are all going to be exploring um, or presenting their various ways of connecting with the creative, with their creativity. Um, so the, the listing from the uh, Houston Grand Opera's website, you can look at up at houstongrandopera.org. It's uh, an exploration of creativity with HGO's Patrick Summers and Dr. Mauro Ferrari, and invited guests who will discuss the various components of creativity, including mathematics, Science, visual art, music, mysticism, and mental health. You can buy tickets on the Houston Grand Opera's website. It is May 20th, 2019, from 7 to 9 p.m. at Match 4 Theater at 3400 Main Street, Houston, Texas. Rodney Waters and I will be performing a song and, uh, and enjoying everybody else there. Oh, yeah, let's get into music. So today's music, you heard a little bit earlier from my friend Patrice Pike. And I've been ready to use her stuff for a while, so I'm glad to bring it to you today. The first bit is a song called Babylon off Live and Then Some from 2011. And at the end of the episode, hang around, there's a full track from her. Uh, It's called The Calling off the album The Calling, 2013. And you can look her up at patricepike.com, P-A-T-R-I-C-E-P-I-K-E.com. Thanks, sis. I'm, uh, I'm excited to use your material. Uh, and Modern Nations Music, the theme music for this podcast is from Modern Nations, my friends Toby and Nolan. Thanks, guys. You can look them up at Modern Nation, modernnationsmusic.com. For information about this podcast, you can look it up at thesacredspeaks.com. And if you like it, please go on to all the, all the stuff. Get on the stuff. <laughs> Get on the social media stuff. Um, and all those various sources and like it and share it sharing it I think is the is the best thing to do uh, and I'm grateful for your listening and um, for now, we'll leave it there. I'm here with Barbara Brown Taylor, and uh, this journey for me started on a long road trip into West Texas with my wife while we we're listening to Learning to Walk in the Dark in the expansive flatlands of West Texas, heading out to Marfa and Big Bend. So to uh, to complete this with you in a uh, in a conversation is really special. So thanks for joining me today.
0: Oh, I couldn't be happier to talk to you, John. Thanks.
2: <laughs> you are lovely. Uh, what? <laughs> you uh yeah, you have such a fun nature. This is uh, this is great. Uh, so as I said earlier, I, you know, you've been on this book tour. You've been doing a lot of thinking about these, uh, these ideas, and certainly, religious, deep religious questions for a long time, and. I, I tend to want to start at the beginning wherever you feel comfortable going because I think laying some of the groundwork for why it is you're interested and thinking about interested in these things and thinking about them so much. If that's where you're okay with starting, mm-hmm. great. If you feel like starting somewhere else, let's go where the spirit moves you. So my, my, my tendency to to, um, to begin these is to say, where does this
0: begin for you? All you have to do is define this, and I'm ready to go. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you mean you can't just uh just take a a, a law ball and project onto that
0: you know when i was a hospital chaplain yeah when i was a hospital chaplain they taught me to go into a room and say tell me about it that's right and you just let them decide what it was that's it so i'm you're, not falling for that
2: you're uh, <laughs> you're into my therapeutic uh techniques here uh yeah by by this okay. i mean you know y- your your religious life and the, the, certainly the conflicts, the chaos, and the, uh, the compassion and the interest. You know, what drives you in, in the religious life? And, and oh, yeah, what laid the foundation for you to be uh, thinking about these thoughts?
0: The only problem with my answer is it won't match the answer I might have given yesterday, but <laughs> life is the process, right? I wonder today if the answer is that I was raised um, in a household with a psychology professor um, who had been alienated from his Roman Catholicism and a stay at home mom who no longer practiced her Southern Methodism and who had agreed before I, their first child arrived, that religion would not be part of my upbringing. I think not because they were violently opposed, but because they thought they wanted to raise a free child you know, who could, make her own choices later. And and perhaps because of that, I decided to investigate what it was that they wanted to keep me away from. (laughs) In other (laughs) words, if I was not being raised in a religious household, why was that exactly? And and what was it about the religions they had experienced that seemed troublesome enough to them to keep me away from them? Um, They made good efforts, you know, to drop me off at a Methodist church or an Episcopal church, or let me go with my friends to the Baptist church, but they never took me themselves that I recall. Um, So when I was 16, I was very influenced by a peer group and um, had a terrible crush on a boy named Jack, who was drafted for Vietnam and said the only thing he wanted before he went to Vietnam was for me to be saved and for me to join the Baptist church. So with that kind of an invitation, there seemed no answer, but sure, when do you want me to do that? So I joined a Baptist church when I was 16 and stayed there a little while, but I've been a a peregrine. I've been a seeker for a long time. I settled on the Episcopal church when I was 25, but before that, um, I went where the spirit blew whether that was a, a backyard in Kansas or a Baptist church with my boyfriend or seminary. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to have a more purposeful narrative to offer you, but the truth is the wind has blown me all over the place. And because I ended up Christian, I call it the Holy Spirit. Did you have these questions
2: as a kid kind of about reality and about the nature of, of, of life?
0: I don't think I had questions. I think I had um, impactful experiences. I think I think I early on experienced what as an adult I might have called some kind of mystical union or some kind of sense of, of nature mysticism because I was lucky enough to be raised in the 50s when I could still ride my bike wherever I wanted to until the sun went down and I could play in the backyard um, until the sun went down. But I, there were very few restrictions put on how far I wandered or with whom. And I survived to tell the tale. So early on, though I was not taken to places of formal worship, I think I experienced a worshipful spirit um, at all the usual human places, sunrise and sunset, and when fires were burning, and, and when birds flew overhead, or when a hawk seized its prey. So that seems to me like the kind of natural sacred experience that's available to most people and it's why so many people say i don't go to church i just worship in nature because that's the one that's there for everybody literate illiterate educated not doesn't matter Uh, oh you know the sunset the sunrise the hawk the waterfall is there so i think that's where i got my start and later i learned theological language for a lot of that which was both a gain and a loss
2: Ooh, say something about that what do you mean gain and a loss
0: Well, when I became Christian, and and actually I can locate several times I became Christian. I became Christian devotionally before I became Christian intellectually or Mm -hmm. um, academically. And the second awakening was actually the more salvific awakening for me. The devotional was wonderful, but I don't know. I'd been raised in a household that was full of thought and full of Shakespeare and full of classical music and full of critical thinking. So in some ways, devotional Christianity left me a little bit uh, at at a quarter of a tank full. So when I found intellectual Christianity in college, I learned theological language. And the gain part was that I gained language to talk about some of the basic human experiences I had had. Transcendence, that wasn't a word in my vocabulary list. Liminality, never heard of it before. But when I entered theological education, I found language. And it was uh, like receiving the great good news that I wasn't alone. Generations before me had stumbled on these same things, and they had a way to talk about it. But uh uh-oh, they had a way to systematize it. You know, they had a way to talk about what came first and what came second and what what naturally came third and what number four would be the natural outcome. So the loss was I started containing these liminal transcendent experiences I'd had. I I found a box to put them in. And in the first place, it's wonderful because I could label the box. And there were other people who would know what I was talking about when I spoke with them using the language in the box. But pretty soon, well, not pretty soon, after a while, the box became a liability and um, and not a rescue. And I don't judge the latter or the former by the latter. It was a rescue when it was a rescue and it became a liability when it became a liability. But I wouldn't trade either of those stages. I needed them both, a formation stage and then a reformation stage. And now I don't even know what to call this stage.
2: <laughs> to learn what you need to learn and then forget all you learned.
0: Isn't that sort of the way?
2: Yeah.
0: You know, sometimes people talk about mysticism, which is a difficult piece of language in itself, but I think that's the pattern. You learn the way, and then you forget all you knew about the way, and then you 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 are back on, I think, the way again. I don't even think it's a new way. It, it's the way, it, and it always has been, but the ways human beings think about it and respond to it can change pretty dramatically over a lifetime. Well,
2: and I want to pick up on that in a bit because mysticism is a, a big interest but to, to back up even a bit you you were talking about how your parents were looking to raise a religiously free person you know to make her own choices and what's your theory or idea about what they were responding to in their own histories to be able to I mean that's that's an interesting approach to say "Ooh, gosh we don't want to feed you this we want you to discover it on your
0: own I think for my father, it was clearer. He was raised in Sioux Falls, South Dakota by a pretty strict Catholic family and was given a Catholic education um, by uh, religious people he perceived as punitive. Punitive and censoring and altogether wanting to lop off every part of him that didn't fit inside Catholic doctrine. So his injury was young and early through Catholic schooling. If I if I spoke for my mother, it would be just a lot of tragedy, you know, enough tragedy in her family that she inherited like minerals in the water, uh, losing her brother, her only sibling, when she was five and he was seven to some mysterious then blood disease and watching her father and mother both fall into profound depressions. You know, so I think whatever religion she received had to go up against a God who had let her brother die unreasonably and young. So I'm not sure how serious, you know, a Christian she ever was. Um, There was so much sadness in her family that I think sometimes the melancholy I now am grateful for, you know, came straight to me in the womb from her.
2: Uh, so that, you know, may give some whiplash. The melancholy you're grateful for. Oh, yeah. Is that kind of what you're getting at in learning to walk in the dark?
0: There's certainly a strong theme of that in there. I think every book I write is the book I need to read, but I can't find it anywhere. So you write it instead. And in my case, it's also the book that lots of people have been sort of nosing around the theme. And I begin to hear it in the emails and hear it in the conversations until I think I've heard enough people talk about being in the dark and being lost that it seems worth exploring whether being in the dark is really being lost or if it's simply being deprived of the the guideposts and the landmarks that help me feel safe. Mm. And that Mm. there's a possibility I'm better off without them for a while if I can stand the existential anxiety of being in the dark and listening to it instead of filling it up with humming or the Lord's Prayer or music on my iPod. (laughs) (laughs) So, So yeah, it has seemed to me you know, as a person who's probably not clinically depressed, though I know something about that, but a person who is um, genetically melancholy, you know, culturally melancholy. And I'm beginning to see the beauty in that because I think melancholy can be fueled by um, an ability to see reality pretty clearly with, without a lot of the filters that other people use to keep the melancholy at bay. It also seems to me, though, that there is a kind of melancholy breaking through in the culture right now that is undeniable. It right. comes out as anger. It comes out as violence. But I think it's deep sadness and, and huge fear. So it, it seems like a good idea to befriend it in some way and see what lesson it has, um, even as I learn how not to you know, live in melancholy 24-7, because then nobody wants to be married to me all, <laughs> or be my friend.
2: Yeah. But
0: you're 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 spot on
2: to that. We know in uh in research that people who are a little bit more on the scale of depression tend to rate their public speaking more in line with uh with how the audience rates their public speaking, but those who are uh optimists tend to inflate their their sense of uh of what they did.
0: Yeah. I'm always waiting to be fired by whom I don't know. I'm just always
2: waiting to be fired. So it's that imposter syndrome that so many suffer with.
0: Yeah, and somebody used to think it was a, a women's problem. It's not. I I know so many people with imposter syndrome. Hard gender does not even come into it.
2: Yeah, and it's correlated with expertise. The more the more really? you become an expert, the more you tend to suffer with imposter syndrome. Well that's easy,
0: isn't there? A cliche, the more you know, the more you know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
2: It's all Socratic back in the uh back in the day. It spawns from the Greeks. So uh mm-hmm. well, the one one of the quotes that you said that has stood out to me for years and I've I've even used it with my kids, is was about monsters and about uh not mm-hmm. not turning on the light. And and I, I I'm uh I'm a recovering uh monster spray guy. You know, I used a little squirt gun and put lavender or something oil in it and we had the my wife and I kind of worked out the monster spray, you know. And and years later, thankfully, I had stumbled into your book and I immediately changed a lot of my orientation to my son's fears at night, which which were to to as inspired by this question that you asked, which was something like we need to not uh, what what would it be like if, rather than turn on the lights, we asked what color is the monster's eyes? I love that.
0: Oh, and I'm just scared to death you act tried that with human beings because it seems to me, you know, I, I have not had children of my own. I have children by marriage and grandchildren whom I claim is my own. And I think there's something, you know, super Jungian and superhuman about about projecting that monster out there. And, and I'm not sure early on, because I don't know developmental psychology, but it seems to me that may serve a purpose. Yeah. But I did, as I thought back to myself as a child, I did wish someone had explored that with me, though honest to goodness, the monster spray would have just made me your adoring child forever if you had to use the promise you had to follow me around the rest of my life with a monster yeah. spray you know you get your and holster all the time you you know, it, 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 it grows that's it, right for the whole rest of my life
2: well i'll share a story i'm sure my son will go oh my god i can't believe you shared that but when he was younger and i was inspired by this what are the what color are the monster's eyes he was terrified one night, and I walked into his room, and, uh, and he said he's, when he looks down the hallway, he sees this witch with a bloody face. And I said, oh, my gosh, what a terrifying image. I said, hey, you know, what if you imagined that you had like a, a big spitwad tube, you know, and you, and you loaded like a, a big thing of paper, and you made it a big spitwad, and you spit it out onto her, and it landed on her chest, and it made a big fart sound. And he just laughed and he laughed <laughs> and then he said, well, you know, yeah, we could do the same thing. And then, you know, it would land on the floor. She'd walk down the hall and it would turn in. she'd step on the spit wad would turn into lips and they would fart every time she she stepped, you know. So, of course, we went with the. um the old bodily humor route, which, is, uh, which can change any situation. So that's a particular form of... Uh,
0: you didn't kill her, which I love. You just hit her with spitwads. Right. I mean, I love this so much. She's just farting. That's so much more creative than having to kill her. Thank
2: goodness. Yeah, we don't want to kill off the witch. We just want to uh, make her become more human. <laughs> Witches fart too is, the, is, the, uh, is, the, is what's going on there. So thank you for that.
0: Oh, I love, I love that. The the humor entering into it with him and giving him a way to reimagine, right? Yeah. Because, you know, my question as a non-parent is where did he get that initial picture? Because especially now, we're all given so many images, and yet we're not given much equipment to deal with the images that we're given. And so the images take up residence in us that's unconsidered real estate. You know, the images get to come in make themselves at home and wreak havoc yeah. um, if, if they don't in some way come up to the level of parental play or monster spray or witch farts. I mean, that's just a <laughs> wonderful way to make an image, you know, an image that came in unbidden, but you found a way to play with it that made it livable, right? Part of that is
2: the, you know, we've, and I think to your point in, in the book is that we have uh, materialized words like imagination and fantasy and they've been relegated to you know some kind of something false and something that we need to write off and and minimize and then the entire endeavor well I my takeaway from that book that I think was just a, a really wonderful reminder is that we to use your term we need to reimagine how we imagine what our imagination is and that all of a sudden changes what's what's possible in our lives, and we don't find comfort only in material, light bulbs and air conditioners and, uh, you know, our bank accounts. Mm-hmm. But th- there's something radical about kind of being alone and walking down, a, uh, you know, that, that long, mm-hmm. long driveway of that example you used of, you know, the, the boy taking the milk all the way down, which is terrifying, but he faces up some demons that are really resting in his, in his own heart.
0: And later credits, that is how he learned courage, that if he hadn't been given something hard and frightening to do, he would never have learned to be brave. And I have a lot of parents respond to that, of how they can teach their children bravery within a safe, you know, parenthetical set. You don't want to put your child's life in danger, but but what are ways to contain danger and still let children face, you know, pretty large fears. What's curious to me is we we treat our imaginations as make believe, but the headlines are real, right? Yeah. The headlines are real. The news is real and the facts are real, but our imaginations, and yet given what you do and given what I do, our imaginations are where reality starts or it's certainly, you know, what reality is always measured by is the power of these images, what it is to be human and who is that person I'm, I'm, with and what is life about so the imagination is vastly underrated
2: well yeah so how you how you kind of draw it out and to me that sounds like so much of what this uh religious endeavor is all about how how we have imagined our relationship to these great mysteries of life and and of course we're 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 limited there but we're also seeing parts of a deeper reality that that we don't have contact with and I, and you your the the first book that I read of yours learning to walk in the dark uh, you know I had been through some deep reading with Jung and of course it's your personality you have this incredibly engaging way about you and the way you write the the imagery that, that you use, that the words you use, the imagery that's evoked is, is uh, you, you can feel it. And, and I had, because mm-hmm. we were driving out to West Texas, we listened to it. And so it was your voice too, which was great. I, um, I, I was very thankful mm-hmm. to kind of get into your experience like that and figure out how you made sense of some very, very deep um, content like evil. And, and, mm. and helped, helped it become something that was really digestible and, and, and even playful and loving. And again, I, I, was, I was grateful for those words you were using and, and certainly the imagery that they put forth in my mind.
0: One of my very best literary friends said, "You probably need to qualify what you mean by darkness, because for you, darkness is like reading a good book by a low watt bulb. So you probably <laughs> need, you know, to put that out there for people that you really, you know, are not living in a war torn country and you're not a double amputee and there, are, you know, a lot of kinds of darkness you know nothing about. So my response to what you just said is, I hold." this kind of dialogical relationship with evil as I know it, I hold that intention um, with people who aren't even here because they're dead, you know, from the evil that swept them away. And I'm not talking about natural disaster here. I'm talking more about, you know, the. deadly evil that comes from people who want to annihilate others so so you know always when I'm sounding pontifical or wise I have to take a step back and say and this is pre-k stuff okay and you know so so darkness in my life is very qualified darkness but even a taste to learn how to how to respond to even a taste I have confidence helps you deal with a larger taste and a larger taste, you know, so that with some luck or grace or whatever you want to call it, um, you can get into something that is um, not quite as fearful or oppositional when what seems evil, you know, comes towards you. Because it means to dismantle you, right? And some dismantling is deadly and some dismantling is blessed. And learning the difference between the two is probably the trick.
2: Sure, and, and and there, I'm glad you said that, um, there we're talking about, I think, what's the differences between literalizing and the symbolic, you know, when those, mm-hmm. when those, when the imagination is taken literally, and death becomes a reality for somebody that is, that, that is not in the imagination, but is enacted in outer reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I know any creative endeavor, you know, you you start something and then you you really learn through the process. And I'm wondering, what'd you learn through the process of writing, learning to walk in the dark? And we'll jump over to Holy Envy in a bit. But what'd you learn while writing? And it's been a while since the book came out. And so I'm curious about your relationship to that that book, Current Day.
0: It's fair to say that to decide to write a book about something is to decide to test your own ideas about it and to explore your own experience about it. And a bumper sticker I used to give out to world religion students said, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> and, and so to write a book is to decide whether or not I believe everything I think about a topic. And and what that means is I get lost in the middle of a book often. But learning to walk in the dark gave me a chance to think about everything from how I would structure the movement of the book, because even nonfiction has to have a plot and it has to have a beginning, a hook, it's got to have a middle point of disorientation, and it's got to have some resolution. Or most readers feel cheated. You know, so even deciding to cast that book in terms of the, the phases of the moon, you know, from a, a a no moon to a sliver moon, you know, up to a full moon, back down again. Uh, was a process of discovering what that cycle felt like in my own life. So the book was a process of exploration and of finding places, especially where my ideas about darkness did or did not land with feet in concrete reality. So I tested out caves and tested out, you know, nights in the dark with no electricity or distractions and, and tested out pretending to be blind, though I'm not blind, you know, but to test out different experiences of darkness to see how the concrete reality matched up with my rich imagination about darkness. Uh, and, And it was a satisfying book to finish. The surprise was when you call it anything you want to, when life, destiny, or God said, that's an interesting book, let's see if you really mean it or not. And then gave me more darkness than I had had to deal with, you know, in the form of a sister with stage four tongue cancer you know, for whom I became medical guardian and a mother who fell into dementia. And and it was a, a really kind of astounding coincidence to have written a book on learning to walk in the dark and to find myself so walking in the dark that uh, I don't even know if I would have written a sequel because it would have been too sobering for anybody who believed The original volume of what happens when you know fuller darkness and fuller darkness and fuller darkness descends—it's enough to make a person melancholy. (laughs) You know, to get a a full uh, dose of the things that can happen to ordinary people. So, so that seems fair. That seems fair of life or destiny or God to say, "Let's see, let's see how that's walking around," and and to discover that there's always more to learn always more to learn and maybe not learn. There's there's always deeper to go. There's always further to fall. There's always further to test, you know, your trust or your confidence in what experience teaches. Every time somebody says, oh, you know, life never gives you more than you can handle or all the variations of that. I have to have a big question mark on that one and think I think it's lucky when you come through you know, some of the really hard stuff with your parts intact. But it seems to happen to people over and over again. So I'm really interested in that, whether it's called grit or resilience or faith, but whatever it is that enables people to coalesce again after they've been disintegrated is a miraculous thing.
2: Post-traumatic growth is what we're hearing about these days a lot.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah my I had a professor of mine once say when I was in crisis that uh, you know when when the crisis hits it's like the the nice walls of life that you've built just explode and you're you're disoriented and in disrepair and it's one of the reasons why Dante Dante called mm-hmm. the devil dis disillusion disorder mm-hmm. disrepair and uh just completely separated, and then, and then she said to me, but then you get to put the bricks back together in a way that serves you in a new way. And certainly mm-hmm. there's a meaning making mechanism in, in humanity, but at least that's where the hope comes in, that despite how, how strained we are, we, we do have the
0: potential to rebuild the wall. If we survive. Yeah. And, and that's my only full disclosure caveat is I've noticed exactly what you're talking about, the miracle, you know, of putting, of of reconstructing, of, of having the privilege of putting broken pieces back together into something like a pattern, something beautiful made out of the old red piece that was broken and the old blue piece that was broken and the old green piece come together as some new stained glass thing, but you have to survive, you know. To do that. And some people don't survive. And I, and I have to stay mindful of that, that, that some people don't ever get that chance. But those of us who do tell our stories to give a light, you know, in, in dark places to, to people who aren't there yet, who, who are just holding on right now, just holding on, you know, with people like you and with people whom I've held on to when I cannot see three inches ahead of me. Uh, but the very fact that I can hear somebody breathing with me is really, really um, a great source of strength and resilience. So, so yeah, when when we get the chance to put it back together, who can wonderful things happen, you know? And some people don't. And so,
2: how did you do it?
0: It was really important to me in some of my more helpless times to maintain even the false confidence that tomorrow would be different. Um, to trust a Buddhist teaching, you know that that change is inevitable. If you love what's going on, guess what's gonna change. And if you hate what's going on, guess what's gonna change. And that became a huge source of strength for me. just the, the confidence and sometimes it was fake confidence that this would not last forever. And then and also because I'm a pretty independent and introverted person, the most broken times I've had have been the times I've most, come out of my shell to say, help, help. <laughs> and that turns out to have been pretty remarkable too, just to have some people answer and to have some people say, how can I help? I'm here, I'd, I'd love to help, how can I help? And some of them have been live and some of them have been on tape and in the pages of books, but that's an experience of community that a strong, independent, rugged helper you know, doesn't get a lot of because I'm usually the person people ask for help. But they were there when I when I asked Mm. back. So that's pretty great. Thank you for that. So
2: let's get uh let's get academic after the descent. And let's do, man. Let's talk about (laughs) theories. (laughs) I'm curious about you you left off where we left off earlier was about 25, and it seemed like religion was coming more into the foreground. And before we, you know, dive headfirst into the uh, the kind of pluralism and perennialism that we're going to talk about, I I'm curious about your formation. To go back to that theme we were talking about earlier, when you learned the language, and you discerned mm-hmm. you out, out in your discernment process, you decided to become a priest. Would you talk about that for a bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> it's one of those one of those uh, tell me about it <laughs> <laughs>
0: well i should mention that i mean so much has happened since then that was the last millennium let me point that out that was the last millennium <laughs> but in the last millennium you know i went straight from college to seminary so i was a you know 20 something seminarian and by the time I graduated seminary in 1976, that was the year that ordination became possible for women. Wow. So I hadn't even thought about it. It wasn't even a possibility. So 1976 was, you know, I still didn't have any real vocation, no wish to become an ordained person. But I didn't know what to do with the rest of my life. So I taught horseback riding and I was a cocktail waitress with a degree from yale divinity school um i could type 60 words a minute so i finally got a job as a secretary you know at a school of theology in atlanta right and it took a few years um soon after that i was hired as sort of the weekend representative woman at a wonderful big downtown episcopal church in atlanta st luke's church and and the um we call them the rector, which sounds like director, but the rector of that Episcopal church was just a great guy. And, you know, he sent me out to hospitals and put me in charge of youth groups, and I visited nursing homes, and and he'd give me a chance to preach from time to time, you know, some service nobody else wanted. I wasn't ordained. He just let me do this stuff. And while I was doing the stuff, I thought, I really like this stuff. I really like this job. I like you know this larger life. I love these symbols. I love this language. I love, I love the the part where we all shut up and eat bread and wine and kneel and and don't talk and and I love the singing. So I just decided I wanted to do something for a living that would let me do more of that. So that wasn't a call from God, right? That was some kind of functional call to ministry, um, and then begins a very long process of of beginning to learn the institutional barriers to a naive 20-something who decides she wants to do that for the rest of her life. Then one discovers reality <laughs> and, and, and learns what the hurdles are and how to clear the hurdles. And the answer is largely through stubbornness. When they send you away, you just keep coming back. And when they say no, you just come back again and say, are you sure? Is no still the answer? And then after about seven years, I got a yes. So I was ordained uh, in my early 30s. In 1982, so what would that have been? A good bit, a good, good bit of time after I had graduated from seminary, which was a good thing. I needed to be calmed down and I needed to learn the realities. And though there was a lot of disillusionment in that about the life of ordained ministry, I was very pleased, you know, for many years to be able to function in that way. I I just had a gold pass into intensive care. I could go into the deepest part of people's lives with a gold ticket and they let me in. Because I had a clerical collar, and because I had been ordained, and because, you know, my job was somehow not to deliver answers but to mediate the divine, and people somehow thought I could do that. So it was a remarkable, you know, breath-stopping, tongue-twisting kind of privilege to be able to do that. So I loved it. It's a sentence like
2: uh, like what you just said. Oh, then we got to return to that. Uh, but there's something about what <laughs> you just said. Um, that people believed you had some kind of ticket to the divine and i think that's where wow. where people get surprised at that because there I, I think we get into the issue with definition of terms you know that aren't aren't mm-hmm. you, you know questions like aren't you supposed to be the the kind of uh, the vehicle mm-hmm. or the line to god mm-hmm. and and by saying what you said i, I think people kind of go wait a second like and, and I, mm-hmm. I hang out with a lot of priests, so I get to talk to them about stuff like this. And uh, so I'm curious, mm-hmm. what does that mean? And what were, what were your struggles like when you were, because mm-hmm. back to your, what you ended with was and then you didn't. So I, I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. if you could talk through some of your struggles as a priest and this kind of walking this relationship between what is divinity and the role that you're having to play for mm-hmm. other people as priest.
0: Let's go back to the gold ticket, because that was never to God. The gold ticket was never to the divine. The ticket was into the ICU after visiting hours, or the ticket was into the valet parking after parking was closed. The ticket was I had access to rooms I would not have been allowed into. I got a ticket into morgue's. I got a ticket into emergency rooms. So that's the ticket piece. The ticket is not to the divine. You know, the, the, the church I entered, the Episcopal Church, Um, certainly entrusted me with what they called sacred orders, but the sense of the divine mystery is safe enough in the Episcopal churches I've known and loved that there's no ticket to God, none. You know, you enter it through the sacramental mysteries that surpass all understanding. So is that okay? The gold ticket was I got access to people's lives that, that other people didn't get. You know, nurses and doctors maybe, but clergy, you know, I could get into places, I could get into jails. I could get into death row. I could get into places nobody else could get into. So that was the the incredible part. Now, once I landed in those places and was lo- looked to for some kind of wisdom, you know, about how to be in those places, that's where it got tricky because um, I began to see my role as sort of, I don't know what, lightning rod? I mean, all, all I needed to do was hold still and be a piece of, you know, conductive metal, so that, you know, the hospital bed in the heavens, you know, had some little conduit that went through me, but it didn't have a lot to do with me. But I, I like to think that in some cases, people were just kind to the poor helpless chaplain who came into the room until we got some kind of relationship going, so they wanted me to come back. Uh, so, so I just want to be clear, I've never in my life believed I had access, clear access to the divine. I will always be the oyster at the bottom of the ocean bed, looking up at the ballerina, the divine ballerina on the shore saying, how does she do that? So, uh, you know, the divine's beyond my imagining. Now let's get to the, what was the, there was a middle question in there. Yeah, well, yeah. So so uh, then I would show up, the hapless 30 year old or the hapless 35 year old saying, now that I'm in this room, what do I have to say that isn't wrote, you know, that isn't memorized, that, that isn't practiced or artificial, or institutionally endowed although it was I wouldn't have been in the room without some institutional endowment but that was um I don't know somehow we got through you know most of the people who let me into their rooms we got through somehow but it seemed to have something to do with a third presence that just accepted our invitation instead of anything we did together
2: well that's that uh it reminds me of if we can jump into holy envy it reminds me of whatever your class underlined and italicized the the comment about genuine human relationship and and there is something about the theme of all the religions that is trying to support in in the best of cases it's trying to support the individual in becoming genuine Uh, and sure and it's i'm doing a study right now on um on Dante's Inferno. And so it's coming up a lot for me, you know, the, the lowest ring of hell is fraud Mm. and the, Isn't that something? It's, it's fascinating. And so it's somehow saying that our our biggest struggle and the last place through which we must descend is our struggle with authenticity and being genuine and creating genuine human relationships that support compassion and love
0: so there, to go straight from Dante's lowest circle to fraud, to why I finally decided to leave parish ministry. I did not leave ordained ministry. I'm still uh, a priest in the Episcopal Church, you know, contrary to persistent and, and public rumor, you know, that I have left everything or been defrocked or something. But I did begin to find that my... My authenticity was lagging, and that I had not only compassion fatigue, but that I was um, I was cultivating a managed heart that was so managed that I was beginning to lose track um, of the resources that allowed me to do the job in the first place. And interestingly, I sort of got a hold of the phrase "the managed heart" um, from a study of flight attendants you know, who are taught to be utterly cheerful, even with a drunk passenger who's trying to, you know, take off all of his or her clothes in first class and do something you know, in the bathroom, that just the way you have to remain cheerful and imagine them as, you know, children. And and the more I read this book about flight attendants, I thought, yeah, and, you know, I just think they're there to bring me coffee and peanuts, but they're there to save my life. I mean, if the plane goes down, they know how to get the hell out of there, but I just want my coffee and peanuts. And so there's a way in which that began to sound too much like my life. You know, it was too much about picking the hymns everybody wanted to sing and, and being lobbied by, you know, you know, umpteen parish groups. This was after I had left um, a downtown church and gone to be, you know, the main minister at a at a rural church, in which many wonderful things happened. But I think my interior process. I was, I was. Um, how old was I then? I was approaching fifty. So you can just ring all the bells that go with approaching fifty, and and deciding I had limited life to live, and I didn't want my heart to be so managed, and it was time to. Um, Literally, take the collar off, take the leash off, uh, and 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 let the horse run outside the paddock uh, before it was too late. So, parish ministry seemed like not the best fit. And through complete fluke, I got a classroom instead with academic freedom, and I and I went straight from the answer business to the question business, and I got to give grades, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> I'm teasing, but <laughs> just think if you're, <laughs> the accountability of that. You will read this because I'm going to give you a quiz on it.
2: Well so here here begins our our conversation about pluralism. And ha- how much exposure before mm. you started teaching how much exposure had you had to you know Hindu philosophy and religion Buddhism so on and so forth?
0: Well, first of all, I like it that you just used the word pluralism, and you didn't put religious in front of it, because religious pluralism ends up being all about cultural pluralism, and all about ideological pluralism, and all about political pluralism. It ends up being about every kind of pluralism. Religion doesn't come, you know, as one strand of wool. It comes all woven in with politics, economics, foreign policy, culture, gender identity, and the rest. But um, to go back to your question, it it's good the college didn't know how little I knew, because then they wouldn't have hired me. But I got to teach introduction to everything, and that seemed safe. You know, I had a Master of Divinity. I could do introduction. I didn't have a PhD, so it's good there were not too many two or 300 level courses. But even at my church-related college, students were only required one course in religion or philosophy to graduate and they often chose world religions which was my class that was my bread and butter class so first semester i just stayed 6 weeks ahead of them and you know second semester i was 8 weeks ahead of them and 10 years in i was about a year ahead of them so i just acquired you know enough experience ahead of them to be able to answer the basic questions that came up over and over and over again but the world changed you know in that period of time as well so i also learned how to answer questions about islam before and after 9/11, and I learned how to answer questions before and after the Dalai Lama ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. And I learned how to answer questions before and after the internet made it possible to visit an ashram on the island of Hawaii or go underneath the the Temple of the, you know, Rock in Jerusalem. So to spend 20 years teaching that course was a huge education for the teacher. But I didn't know enough when I started. Um, to have written syllabus, but I'm a fast learner. So, <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> well, what did you learn? You know, the truth about that is, I learned as much about human beings and about the student teacher relationship as I did about anything else. At, at first, I was so focused on content, mm. you know, getting across the content, the, the origins, sacred texts, central practices, and beliefs of five major world religions so that it would fit into 15 weeks and match our textbook. That's how I started. Uh, Within a year, it was all about field trips, getting out of the classroom and going someplace we were clueless to be with people in their sacred spaces and to experience their incredible hospitality to a bunch of clueless college students and their teacher um, so that relationships became central to the course. And, And then the next step was to become fascinated with pedagogy, just how do you teach? You know, how do you convey wisdom from one generation to the next? What kind of teaching used to work that doesn't work anymore? Um, how, How are students of all ages learning today? And how quickly can I keep up with the changing ways in which they learn? And then somehow, fourth, how do you create a trusting relationship with people whom you are grading? You are grading them and yet they still trust you to say things to them that they'll remember. And even if they make a D in the course, they'll say, best class I ever had in college. You know, that's a great thing.
2: What are the, the main stumbling blocks that people have around religion, understanding what religion's all about?
0: Well, so I hope in my book I, I made clear I can answer that question from the perspective of one classroom yeah. in, in a rural college in Northeast Georgia. So I can't answer a question about religion in general, but I can talk about the major obstacles for students at a college that drew largely from the regional Southeast. we had international students and students from elsewhere, but largely a Southeastern regional four-year liberal arts college. Uh, So we lived in what Flannery O'Connor once called the Christ haunted South, which meant Many students came in culturally Christian, you know, if not actively practicing Christian. And, and many of them came in w- with a faith that they'd stopped paying much attention to at age 12. You know, when they got confirmed or bar mitzvahed, or at any rate, got their driver's licenses and didn't have to go to church anymore. Um, but many of them brought with them a fear of exploring other traditions. Hellfire and damnation was pretty, pretty real for most of them. And a a lot of them had been schooled in fear-based religions that that really, you know, kept the the roof on by promising heaven to the good ones and hell to the bad ones. So I would say the major obstacle I faced all along uh, was the fear of students who had a deep desire to learn more about people who were not like them, but who thought that meant they were sleeping around on Jesus and they were gonna pay for it.
2: Scary. One of the things that I, I've even been thinking about this, but it's its its written all over your book, the differences between belief and practice. And to me, and mm-hmm. if I'm, I'm making a leap here, but it sounds to me one of the things that you've tended to envy has to do with the practices that and rituals that exist that put people into relationship with something deeper rather than just be some question about what you believe or what you don't believe. What is holy envy? And why do why is this tendency to envy other traditions once we get exposed to them? Why do we shut it down and judge it? And it sounds like you went through a process of really opening up in a lot of ways and learning from other traditions and helping others do the mm-hmm. same.
0: And because holy envy may be an odd phrase to some ears, because it's a deadly sin, envy is, and to put holy in front of it um, is one of the reasons I was drawn to it. It's like divine decadence, you know, or good grief. It's a wonderful oxymoron. Um, and I borrowed it from Krister Stendahl, who made it one of his three rules for religious understanding, to leave room for holy envy. What I found with the college students I've described, and there were many others not like those I described, was to put holy in front of envy and to suggest that that might be a kind of practice they could use as they visited a Buddhist monastery or a Muslim mosque or a Jewish synagogue, that if they found themselves finding something lovely there, if they experienced the divine there, that was usually the scariest of all, You know, to see something holy there. Could frighten some of them, but somehow, as I worked that concept in class, you could hear this big sigh of relief. Like it doesn't mean I'm lost. It's holy. It's holy NP. You know that there's a, there's a way to look across the fence at the neighbor's yard and see something lovely and admire it. And then look back at my yard and say, you know, there's some things I could straighten up around here. I'd like to get my rose bushes back in better, better shape. Or it's probably time for me to mow my lawn. And and granted, it was because we had beginner's mind. You know, when we visited other traditions, we saw the best. The news had given us the worst. Social media, Hollywood had given us the worst. And so when we visited places and discovered the best, um, the way holy envy can work is is you you come back to your own tradition with fresh eyes. You know, and, and a fresh wish to, to recover whatever you saw in that other tradition, recover some sense of that in your own. And if you have no tradition, you know, you, you adamantly, you know, claim to be a humanist or an agnostic or an atheist, I still found students so amazed to discover that the Hindu notion of karma required no deity. That you are accountable for your own actions and choices, you know. And several would write and say, "I'll never forget that. I, I'm taking that on for myself." You know, I don't believe in God, but but I do believe that my actions have consequences. So it was lovely to watch students be- become more at ease with finding something to admire in another tradition, and realize that if they had one of their own, they could bring that back home. Um, And that it it also wasn't going to kill them to visit the neighbors, you know, going to a mosque was not going to make them Muslim any more than going to France was going to make them French. I mean, they didn't have to turn in their passports. You know, they could get their passports stamped and come back home and, and talk about the great trip they'd been on. But it was interesting to see how many or learn how many of their parents warned them Mm. against their open-mindedness, you know, who, suggested they might not take any more religion classes interesting well the
2: the metaphor is funny or that analogy about france going to france and not becoming french it's funny and we can all say oh yeah that that's a that's a good one that that makes a lot of sense but it's true around religions there's a fear about um even looking on the other side of the fence that creates this clinging to certainty. And mm-hmm. well, this is a <laughs> talk about a deep question, but what do you think is at play there around how people cling to their tradition so much?
0: I used to think, I think I still think psychology 101 should be prerequisite to religion 101 so that people get some idea of how their own psyches work, um, how projection and scapegoating work, you know, how uh, transference works, you know, idolization, because so much of that is at play. I think the safest way though, for me to answer your question is to answer it personally. And, And it is how surprised I was as a person of advanced years to find teachings against idolatry or eating food offered to idols or thou shalt have no other God but me, or no one comes to the Father but by me. You know, the the early phrases of threat, of punishment, zoomed to my mind much faster than, you know, God is love, or love one another as I've loved you, or it's just interesting. And I think that is part I mean, I've been taught that humans are much more tuned to threat because it can kill us, right? And we're less tuned to loveliness because that's not going to kill us. So maybe that explains why the verses of threat, you know, rose up to smack me in the forehead so fast. I couldn't even recognize where they were coming from. So I can only imagine that happens for students as well. You know, that, that the threat of punishment, I am about to become lost um, but there's a there's a, a higher level threat and that is oh my gosh if i investigate that way of thinking i may question my way of thinking if i investigate that view of reality i may begin to doubt my view of reality if the Four Noble Truths start to sound right to me, is that going to be compatible with the gospel according to Matthew? And so that's a higher level of threat, I think, than just I'm going to hell. You know, I just made God mad. The, the higher level is, oh, I can see what's coming here. You know, my certainty is about to be shaken, and I don't know that I'm equipped for this. And, and I don't know if I want to go there. I mean, that's like the, the map where beyond here lie dragons which was why the field trips were so wonderful because when we got there, there were no dragons. You know, there might've been a gold dragon in front of the Tibetan Buddhist monastery. But other than that, no dragon. There were just like monks, llama, you know, llamas who said, excuse me while I turn my cell phone off or I'd like to use a PowerPoint tonight. <laughs> there were just people, you know, like us who, who were not dragons. Um, but you're asking a huge question. And I think every person who listens to us um, could could stay up tonight and think about that. So, what am I so afraid of? Why am I so afraid? And, and in some places in the world, I'm afraid because m- my children and I could be taken away in the middle of the night and never be heard from again. But, you know, to most of the people listening to us, who I assume are pretty well-fed Americans, the fear is different. It's of a different quality and it's about my certainty. It's about my safety. It's about my survivability in every way, not just religiously. You know, I I worry very much about violence right now being driven by the idea that they are trying to replace us, whoever they are. You know, we will not be replaced. You will not replace us. And I keep wondering who the you is and and who the we is, but that fear of being replaced of being supplanted, which is so often fictional. Well, and religion seems
2: to be an easy scapegoat for those personal struggles.
0: Tell me about it. The sanctification, yeah, the sanctification of the fearful psyche, you know, or the sanctification of the threatened minority or the sanctification of the threatened majority, which is what is so puzzling to me. I know in in the part of the country where I live, Christians are dominant. I mean, we still have a manger scene in front of the County Electrical Membership Corporation, you know, at Christmas time. There are not enough Jews here to make a minion. There's not enough Muslims to keep a halal butcher in business. And yet, if the greeter at Walmart says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, that is a threat to my faith that the greeter at Walmart did not recognize it's Christmas. I mean, it's a very odd threat on the part of a majority, you know. A huge majority. And Who's I'll tell you, me? I'll
2: kill you, you son of a bitch, for speaking like that.
0: <laughs> if you say happy holidays to me one more time?
2: <laughs> yep. So, the, this uh, is your
0: area of expertise, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> well,
2: you know, sometimes I feel like that, you know, scared 30 year old that has, you know, no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> the question that came up for me as we're talking about this is the difference or what you would say about. Human beings being created in the image of God versus mm-hmm. human beings creating the image of God,
0: sure, oh, okay, I have two ways to respond to that. Let's start with one, Certainly within the Abrahamic traditions, which are the image of God people, you know mm-hmm. Jews, Muslims, Christians tend to to say that uh, within those. It is a cliche among us almost that we return the favor by creating God at ours. You know, you pick up anyone's sacred text and the favorite pages will be the ones that tell us we're right. And the pages that often get overlooked are the pages in which the deity says, you pay attention to those strangers and you treat them like you treat your own kin. And don't forget those widows and orphans. And those sojourners in your land, you make sure they're fed. And those poor people, don't you take their cloak and not give it back to them by sundown? Those pages can be ignored, you know. But the pages that say I'm on the right path, you know, I am God's favorite. Um, those are the ones that get privilege. So we return the favor, you know. If we are made in God's image, we return the favor, and and uh, create God in ours. So that my favorite rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, you know, says. Um, the real religious challenge is to see the image of God in one who is not in my image. And that's where he begins to push, you know, the religious challenge to to see God's image in those who don't look a bit like me. Um, And that's as much as the central teachings of those religions as, you know, all all the favorite ones about being on the right path. Uh, but it is the reason, you know, that I've not left my Christian identity is the central teachings are enough to keep me busy for the rest of my life, you know, to, <laughs> to love the neighbor as the self and to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, when you look at the actual teachings that came out of Jesus' mouth, there wasn't one about, you know, join my church. It be baptized in my name. And you can read John's gospel and get some pretty believe in me kinds of things coming out of Jesus' mouth. But mostly he was about pointing beyond himself. Um, and and that's, that's the guy, you know, that can keep me busy the rest of my life with teachings about selflessness, about getting over myself, about taking the other's needs, wants, desires, and loves as seriously as I take my own. <laughs> that's a lifetime's work. Well, and your point is
2: really well taken about that being the domain of the psychotherapist. I'm teaching a class right now with a rabbi friend of mine, and I said something about the you know, the, the critique of the spiritual but not religious community is that you have no kind of core ethic, and so the, they these folks may end up kind of projecting their own desires out there onto the world. And he looked at me and said, well, that's what we do in religion too, right? And I thought, yeah, Yeah. that's, that's great. So it shows up everywhere. It's, it's always there. (laughs) We're always projecting. (laughs) And that's, that's, uh, Young wrote a paper Mm -hmm. actually about the um, clergy and and psychotherapy and where they separated and why they separated. And I I really appreciate your commentary about that because it, it truly is so often and at least an an aspect of your own personal struggles that are reflecting back to you in your assumptions about the religious traditions, both your own and others.
0: I truly believe that. And I don't know how that spiritual but not religious discussion went for you, but I find that a maligned community, especially when they're called the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, Mm -hmm. because they're not religiously affiliated. Um, Because I... I see in them a huge yearning, and if they're shopping, they're shopping for exactly what you said. They're shopping for the worldview, you know, for for some kind of set of beliefs or practices that match match their what shall we call it interior reality, their intuited reality, their sensed reality, you know. And and when when one has not sufficed, when the language has died, the practices no longer carry life. They'll shop. They're going to move around. Yeah. You know, so they may not have deep uh, mooring in a religious tradition, which I think would be helpful. It's why we ask college students to major in something. Why don't you learn to think deeply about one thing? And that'll help you think deeply about many But if you think shallowly, if you minor in everything, you won't learn to think deeply about anything. So, you know, I'm somebody who thinks it's helpful to have a tradition. But I certainly know a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who haven't found home yet or have left home. And haven't found a new home yet, and uh, and I think that's you know a generation a lot of us are focused on because they're reinventing religion in their time. And my guess is, right. multiple religious identity is already here and is is going to be more here than ever.
2: Which, really, is wonderful about your commentary in the book about the Hindu Hindu tradition. That the Hindu mm-hmm. tradition really it has it makes room for that. Would you say something mm-hmm. about that? because I think that's important for anybody who doesn't know that to to understand that a bit.
0: I have one colleague who dropped Hinduism out of her syllabus because she said it just didn't act like a religion <laughs> because Hinduism has no one sacred text, no one founder, no beginning date, you know, no no one I mean, it just it has no one thing. And it ends up being really more of a colonial way of putting an umbrella over all the, the religious spiritual expressions found in the subcontinent of India. So it, it, it at the beginning, uh, uh, you know, was a multiplicity and not a singularity. Mm-hmm. But the best explanation I got from my favorite Swami, Swami Yogashananda, he said, he said, you're thinking of Hinduism as a store. And he says, you need to think of it like the Mall of Georgia. It's a gigantic mall with many stores in it, you know, and there are big ones, there are department stores, there are small ones, but um, but, but I think Houston Smith, one of my, you know, never met mentors, but adopted mentor said that Hinduism was the great psychologist, you know, of the world religions that knew people were different and knew there was no sense insisting people follow a single path, read a single text, you know, Form their lives after a single exemplar, so yeah, the 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 pluralism of Hinduism is is built in. Uh, students students loved that. Uh,
2: so with with that in mind, I, there is somebody. I was really I I, I I think it was chapter five. You were talking about Shlomo. Oh yeah, and I I was I don't know I don't I don't. There's no question other than maybe you introducing. Anybody listening to this fella who sounds like a pretty fascinating human being, and what you experienced in that relationship—he
0: is, yeah. The chapter you're talking about is our nearest neighbors, and that was the chapter on Judaism. Hmm. Shlomo is in there as Shlomo because that's his chosen pseudonym. Uh, he didn't want his real name used, but he read the whole chapter. He vetted it. He corrected my capitalization, my my I'm sure everything. He did. Um, uh, but he, <laughs> he did. and and actually, that that you know was a role he loved at Piedmont College. He showed up one day in a fedora in class, and uh, before long, I realized that he had attended a yeshiva, you know in Jerusalem, that he considered himself Orthodox um, Jew who kept kosher laws. He was Christian on his father's side, Jewish on his mother's side and chose once he learned about the maternal line of Judaism to become very, very Jewish. And he did, Um, and came under the wing of an Orthodox synagogue in Atlanta who actually helped send him to Piedmont College. So he became what he even humorously called the most visible Jew on campus and uh, sort of enjoyed speaking for worldwide Jewry in class. You know, if you had a question about anything, but he had the Talmud on his cell phone. I mean, this young man was remarkable. If I asked him any question about Torah, he could give me the rabbinical commentary, you know, from the eighth century forward. So, So he was remarkable. And he ended up being the star of that chapter because he was such a great, exemplar of of his faith. And he, because he knew both sides, he knew the Christian and and the Jewish approaches to life, he had better answers for the the Christians in class than anything they had ever heard of. I mean, anybody who innocently tried to evangelize Shlomo learned out really quickly that he knew scripture, Christian scripture, a whole lot better than they did. And that they were gonna be on the defensive in about a minute, not because he was mean, but because he was so smart. You know, that he thought it all through and he had much better answers to their questions than they had questions. So he ended up just being, I don't know, a walking, talking exemplar of what it is to learn about your own faith from the faith of someone else who takes his very seriously and yet does not dismiss you for yours, but will call you to deeper thoughtfulness about yours, you know, and will call you on your dumb questions to him about his so he was a walking, talking stereotype buster, and uh, and uh, I'm very happy he's in the book.
2: Well, to me, he stood out as something that I think is lacking in a lot of, um, well, when people stay in that developmental stage of learning the language and clinging to the language, for me, what I imagined he is good at is recognizing the different interpretive frameworks that we can have when we look at these traditions and that where there are Mm -hmm. numerous layers on which we can operate and he he because he's he comes off as so smart you're you're knowing that hey this is a fellow who's really kind of meandered through all those various layers and it can speak to those and i don't Mm -hmm. think people are well aware of that those interpretive frameworks that exist Can you speak about that for a bit?
0: I can. And and my first reaction to what you just said is, is, um, as a Jew, Shlomo was schooled in dialogical theology. You know, that's the whole rabbinical commentary, is rabbis in dialogue with each other, sometimes heated dialogue. But it's because they both care about what they're talking about. Mm. And, And in their arguing with each other over the meaning of the text, they come to greater and greater truth you know, about about the text. So he came into class with a dialogical approach to religion, but that was not the approach of many of the Christians in class who had been taught not to question. Don't question me, that's not a faithful question. You know, accept what's on the page, Bel- believe what you've been taught. And, and so I think, you know, that was a great learning in itself for anybody who could get the lesson. Uh, but I I would also say that that what Shlomo was comfortable with, and what you and I I think are comfortable with, and probably most of the people listening, it's not for everyone. You know, it is that this this level of dialogue, you know, between among within faiths is not for everyone. I also have met people, but especially students coming out of such traumatic childhoods, you know, such injured parenting situations that. Our Father who art in heaven became their last best hope of becoming whole, and the Jesus who loved them enough to die for them can bring them to tears in the hallway of a college, you know, and and I learned quickly not to mess with that, you know, and, and not... To, to say you are welcome in this class right there and all you're required to do is is listen you know as other people talk but you're you're in no way in fact you might even think about not taking this class because you'll you'll never be able to forget what you hear here and it might not be a great time for you so if you're fresh and raw and new or this is hugely important to you please stick with your devotion right now you know and and, for, and forget this mm. you're going check back with me when you're a senior. So, so I also got a real comeuppance about insisting that everybody be at some particular level about openness, you know, to to other faith. That that wasn't a requirement of the course.
2: God, it's a really important. But you didn't
0: have to become. Yeah, it, it it is, and I think, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it is an important thought, and and I only learned it because of students who taught me that. But it it. They're, people are at different developmental stages, right. and I think to give them some place of safety to explore is way better than putting them in a position of feeling like they're required to explore. Because that, that goes nowhere.
2: <laughs> I, the, That's its own kind of evangelism, isn't it? Yeah. My, my hope is that people begin to question their assumptions they have on, on the other uh, rather than just go on assuming and you, you had it, it was late in the book where you were talking about stereotypes and it being some form of a econ- mental economy you know to help uh, so you don't have to do all the acrobatics one needs to do when you get in a relationship with someone that's different than you are
0: <laughs> shortcuts yeah cognitive shortcuts stereotypes yeah 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 you know when we were talking about whether it's the psyche whether the kind of leave me alone with my certainty, leave me alone with my paradigm, whether that starts in the psyche or in the religion or in the culture. Um, What is lovely to me is how life keeps pushing back at that certainty. You know, life, if I explore just a little bit, won't, won't let me keep my stereotype. It will not let me have my certainty. You know, that if I'm paying just a little bit of attention, uh, the conversation is going to be complicated every single day. So what becomes interesting to me is how do people defend themselves against complication? Is that too complicated a thought? But you know what I mean? I <laughs> I have so welcomed the complication of my thought. Uh, but there are people well defended against the complication of their thought. And I wonder how they do it. You know, how do they keep the complications out?
2: Yeah, well, that that's not a, I mean, I guess it's a complicated thought. Yes. It's um, but it, it, it certainly underscores everything that we're talking about when it comes to encountering all these differences and where we are in the world where we're back to your earlier comment with Internet pre post Internet. What happens now that I can just use a search engine to watch a particular, you know, imam or Buddhist ritual? from the comfort of my own office and I'm getting exposed to all these differences all the time. If I have the eyes and the desire to seek it out. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I'm still grateful that I'm talking to you on a computer where I cannot taste anything. I cannot smell anything and there's no body heat. And, and you know, that plus, you know, the, the decorations on the wall, we can't do music, we can do visuals, but what I loved about, about leaving the classroom with students was body heat. Mm. You know, other human beings and smells and tastes and the meal that the Sikh community had been up since 10 a.m. cooking for us. And, and the, the butter lamps and the Hindu temple and the incense at the Buddhist monastery, you know, and, and the body heat, you know, the warm human beings who were there. I mean, 99.9% of it. Every now and then we get somebody cranky, but it, they were usually cranky because of the stupid question the last student group had asked them, you know, so. Mm. but. But there's something about these screens we depend so much on that are not embodied. They're still not embodied. I see you, but I have no idea, Mm. you know? Um, I'm not in the room with you. And I'm so aware of not being in the room with you. So as wonderful as this is, it's not the same thing. But it's being in the same room with people that softens me over and over again and that complicates the conversation. And frankly, it just shuts me up. I just want to sit down and listen i don't even want to talk anymore
2: well it's the uh so religious correlate to road rage you know it, it we would never we would never you know act that way on a street in new york city but man put me in a car all of a sudden i i'm acting in ways i would never act when i'm looking and smelling somebody
0: yeah yeah there's a yeah there's an accountability to being there in the flesh that uh changes people so so I think you How are you so, doing, John?
2: I well, I I'm certainly right now I'm wishing we were in the room together and uh and, and hanging out in person. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I know we got to finish and uh and I'm curious ha, what what little thread is hanging out for you that we need to circle up on.
0: Because this is called the Sacred Speaks. That's the, the rubric we're speaking under. And I suppose what I want to say, regardless of age or religion or no religion or whatever of listeners, that the interesting thing about the sacred speaking is that the sacred also keeps silence. And I have learned as much from the sacred silence as I have from the different ways that the sacred speaks, whether that's through revealed texts or through other human beings. But somewhere in the sacred speaking, the sacred also keeps silence. Mm -hmm. And and perhaps that's important to me in the same way that sacred darkness is important to me along with the sacred light. Um, But but I, I, I hope everyone who listens to us remembers that the silence is as sacred as the speaking, which is probably that thread we dropped earlier about the great mystics of the traditions, mm-hmm. you know, and that the ones who sit down to pray or meditate or be silent together often embrace each other more warmly in the lunchroom than the people who were in the other room talking about their theological concepts. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the ones who find a way to sit quietly together who end up laughing the loudest over the, the cheese sandwiches, you know, instead of the people who were in there trying to hammer out the differences in their doctrines make of that what you will
2: laughing about witch farts and uh and theology
0: (laughs) Uh (laughs)
2: barbara thank you so much this is uh this is a gift i um just thank you so much for your time this is fantastic
0: i have loved every minute and don't give me your address or one day i'll be at the door (laughs) so thank you you,
1: I never do